The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. If we have not met before, I am Dave. I'm the high school pastor here, and I also get to teach up here sometimes, occasionally. So it's really good to see you all this morning. And, uh, well, a few years ago, I was meeting with a former student of mine who had just graduated high school, and he was really questioning and doubting the Christian faith. Now, he wasn't questioning the existence of God, but he was questioning the goodness of God. And it really centered upon the issue of suffering, like how can a good God allow so much evil and suffering? So what if you had a friend who was asking a similar question? What would you say to them? How can God be good but allow so much suffering? We've been looking at First Peter the last few weeks, and of course, he deals with that topic in great detail as we've gone through the book, and, and especially as it relates to how do we handle suffering when we're suffering for one's faith. And uh, so the three main ideas that I shared with my, my, my former student on that day, and, um, and here's a few of the ideas I shared with him. Uh, first of all, I, I, I talked about the idea that you know, suffering is addressed all throughout the scriptures. So it's not like God is silent on the matter. So if someone's coming and asking the question, you know, how can I believe in a God who allows so much suffering? There's a lot in the scriptures about suffering and how we're to respond in suffering. We see that in the book of Job. We see it over in the book of Psalms. We see it in the book of James. We've been discussing it a lot lately in this series, also back in our series during the summertime. So it's not like God is silent on the matter of suffering. Secondly, I believe that Christianity has the best explanation, but also the best solution for suffering. Now listen, I'm not suggesting that if if a friend of yours is walking through really, really difficult times, that you give them a three-point PowerPoint. I'm not saying that this morning. But I'm saying that you you be with your friend, like the way that Tim talked about a couple weeks ago, and you just sit with them. But if someone is having this like existential crisis about the, the topic of suffering, these might be some good ideas to convey to someone in that situation. But I really do believe that Christianity has the, the best explanation for suffering, why we suffer, but also the best solution uh, for suffering. Now, for those who might question the faith because of suffering, they still need to find an explanation for it, but also a solution to it. And I think they may fall short in those areas, Um, But I think Christianity addresses both of those. And then thirdly, uh, Christianity gives us resources to endure suffering. And you're going to see that in today's passage. The great resource that we have in the resurrected Christ as we think about suffering and how it relates to our lives. Now, most of us have these kinds of questions whenever suffering gets really personal. Something happens to us, something happens to someone that we love, and this is where we start to have those questions and doubts in the way that my, my student uh, did. And I will tell you that the Bible, of course, doesn't address every instance, because most of the time it's, it's, we're asking questions like, well, why am I suffering in this particular way at this particular time? The Bible doesn't address that, but the Bible does give us some ideas, big picture, on how we're to handle and walk through suffering. Now, I think this raises a question for all of us. Do we look at God through the lens of suffering, or do we look at suffering through the lens of God? I think it's really important for us to see suffering with a God lens as we look at why things may happen to us or those that we love. 
So in today's passage, we're going to find our greatest resource for handling unjust suffering. Before we look at the passage, though, I want us to reach back into last week's passage that Tim covered last week. Now listen, Tim did a great job. I'm not trying to re-preach his sermon, but there's one verse I want to pull out that he talked about last week, and uh, it's verse, uh, 1 Peter 3.15, where Peter is addressing uh, how to handle suffering for one's faith. And the verse says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So Peter is describing our heart posture, how we should approach making a defense for our faith. And the word defense here is apologia in the Greek, which is where we get the word apologetics, which means to defend the faith. Now, sometimes we view apologetics as just going on the offensive or contending for the faith or just arguing with someone. And there might be a place for that, but I think what Peter is really saying here is something like this. Live in such a way that unbelievers are curious about your life. Live in such a way, maybe in front of other people, that they're going to ask questions about why you do relationships the way that you do, why you do money the way that you do money, and live in such a way that that's going to raise questions that they may ask about your life. And this really can't happen if we're never around unbelievers. Sometimes we, we think we can just live in this cocoon or, or bubble and never having contact with those that don't see things just like we do. But Peter is saying, live in such a way that people will, will look at your life and it's going to raise up some questions. I think there's two mistakes that we can make sometimes as we do this. The first is to make a defense, but to not have gentleness. I think of a, of a documentary I saw a few years ago where there was a, a skeptic interviewing some Christians. And the Christian said to the skeptic, he said, if, if you're going to mess with my God, you're going to have to mess with me. And I just thought, that's your defense? And, and really defending the faith in the same way that you might defend your mother or your grandmother if someone speaks bad about them. And you just want to get after it and have a fight with the person. That's not what it means to truly make a defense. You know, some are more concerned with winning the argument rather than winning the person. And I think today especially we're tempted to to play the games of our culture. And, and we see what's happening out there in the culture. We say, you know what? It's time for us to take off the gloves as it relates to relating to our culture. But listen, our lives are supposed to reflect the one that we're defending. So maybe defending the faith is less about arguing and more about letting people see where we place our hope. The second mistake we can make is to have gentleness but no defense. You know, some Christians think, well, you know, if I'm a nice person, if I treat people well, well, people will just, they'll figure it out. They'll come to know Jesus somehow. Well, listen, there's a lot of nice people out there that are of other faiths. I've heard well-meaning Christians say, you know, I'd rather just live out the gospel than share it. But the gospel, the word gospel means good news. You, you, you proclaim, you speak, you say good news. You can't just live out good news. You know, living a, life, living a good life is an effect of the gospel, but it's not the same thing as the gospel. 
We can't just do nice things for people and expect them to just to connect all the dots themselves. So what can keep us from speaking or giving a defense? For me, it's often just fear of man. I love the words of Juan Sanchez. He says, fear of man will keep us quiet, but God's love has a way of opening up our mouths. You know, sometimes our fears may not be the intense suffering we've heard about from the persecutors church throughout history or even what's happening back at the time of First Peter being written, but it may not be intense suffering. It might just be being left out of some social circles. Several years ago, uh, one of my former students, her name is Allison Waite. She graduated, I forget how many years ago, maybe six years ago now, uh, from our youth ministry here at TBC. And she was a senior, a graduated senior. We were at Impact Camp down in New Braunfels, training for Impact Clubs that summer. And she had just finished her senior year. And she was committed to go play volleyball at University of Incarnate Word down in San Antonio. And she was already, she, she kind of rushed over to me during camp at one point. I thought she was stressing about something related to camp. And she was really stressing out because she had people on her soon-to-be volleyball team that were kind of blowing up her phone, a text thread, as they were just kind of getting to know each other through text messaging and, and kind of planning out the, the party scene once they got down to San Antonio in a couple of months for volleyball just to, to begin happening. And she just walked over and said, hey, how do I, I'm kind of nervous and scared about walking into this environment now. Like, how do I live out my faith in this context? And we had just a brief conversation about it. And then the story I heard a couple years later was really encouraging because what I heard, I, I talked with her several years ago about this, and she said that her freshman year, she said that teammates began to have a respect for her as she would you know, maybe abstain from what they were doing, but tr- still trying to find a way to have a relationship and friendship with some of those girls on the team. And she was trying to walk this line of how do I maintain my faith and my witness and my testimony in a really difficult context, but still try to reach them relationally. And the way she described her freshman year was maybe living out this gentleness, but no defense. And then sophomore year comes around and she said, I felt just compelled to begin speaking and saying more as I had more respect on the team with my teammates. And so she began inviting people, friends of hers, to come to church with her down in San Antonio. And, and, and some of them began attending church with her. And then what's really encouraging is there were three girls that decided to get baptized because of those relationships. And then one of their friends came to know Christ when they saw the friends get baptized. And it's just a great example, a powerful story of how when you live out your faith and you do make a defense, but you do so with gentleness and respect, what God can do as he honors that. And one thing she said to me was, it was a reminder She said how important it is for someone who's giving this reason for the hope that's in them has to be done in the context of relationship. And she emphasized that. Now, there are times that we experience these blessings in this way, but sometimes we're just, we don't see it that way, and we just keep on getting mocked and ridiculed for our faith. So as you look back at the section in verses 8 through 17 in chapter 3, It's all about how we respond to evil. The word evil there is used seven times in that passage. And I think we tend to like overestimate or inflate the power of evil. I heard a really good podcast on this recently where they're dealing with the question, why does evil seem so powerful? And one of the points one of the guys made in the podcast was, well, first of all, 
whoever is committing evil or, or doing evil things, at the core of that is a denial of truth. And you know, people telling lies to escape immediate consequences. And, and this kind of thing can work, work for a while, but eventually it's going to implode. So whenever you and I are looking at the state of the world, whether it's governments across the ocean or, um, or whatever it might be, the, the things you think of as big picture evil, whatever it might be, at the heart of any evil, there is, there is this denial of truth, always. The second point is that it violates boundaries. So whatever agreed upon principles and boundaries that maybe most people tend to operate under, those that are, that are bent on committing great evil, that doesn't apply to them. And they live their life that way. And so the forces of evil in our world can seem so just out of control and so just like a crazed animal as we think about the concept of evil in our world today. And then thirdly, it relies on fear to motivate. And this motivation of fear can inject power into those evil movements in the short term, but long term, those qualities are going to dissipate and they're, they're going to become self-defeating. One of the guys on the podcast said this, if we grant power to evil, it is like granting power to a shadow. But when we shine light on it, evil looks more like a mouse than a lion. You've seen those images where you see a, a, a really scary shadow projected and you look at it and it's just like something small and insignificant. That's kind of how evil is. We tend to look more at the shadow that is creating versus the substance of what it is. And evil can sometimes seem really insurmountable. And we can give it greater power than it deserves in our lives and also out there in the world. But these next few verses show us that by the power of Christ's resurrection, that he has defeated the powers of evil. You know, back in chapter 2, we learned about the redeeming power of Christ's crucifixion. And today's passage is going to highlight the conquering power of his resurrection. Because back in that time, Nero, who was in power, and others that were in power, they did all they could do to destroy Christianity because Rome's greatest authority was being able to inflict death. And as hard as they tried to put Christianity in the grave, they couldn't keep it in there. And so I'm going to warn you this morning that, that today's text we're going to get into is a, a really hard text to understand. Martin Luther once said of this text, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any, in the, uh, any other in the New Testament, and I still don't know what it means. That was Martin Luther. And he's a little bit smarter than me, a lot smarter than me. Now, I heard a pastor also say, you know, why do we preach a passage like this? Because today's passage, if you're, if you're looking at, like, what does a pastor want to pick to preach, like, today's passage would not be the one that you would probably select. So why does... We preach a passage like this, well, the same reason we climb Mount Everest, because it's there. And we're going to work through it together. We're going to go through it together. So look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, where it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, it being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So the word for there in verse 18 Shows us, that, shows us that verses 18 through 22, they flow out of verse 
17. There's an implied question at the end of verse 17, and it's this. Why is it better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil? And so Peter answers that by pointing to Jesus as our example, saying that Jesus walked the road of unjust suffering before we did, and suffering became his road to glory. And that's not two separate roads. They're the same road. So it's true, Jesus is our example, but more than that, because his death accomplished something for us. So what did it accomplish? Well, if you're new to the Bible, in the Old Testament law, God set up this sacrificial system for the people of Israel to deal with sin. And this would remind them how serious God takes sin. So when they would take the life of an animal and see that, that blood just run out and that sacrifice was was sacrificed, it was a reminder of, this is what we deserve. Like, we deserve this death, physically and eternally, eternal separation from God. And this would remind them how serious God takes sin. There's nothing special or magical about the animal blood, but all those sacrifices for all those centuries would point to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, because there was something special about his blood. And it, was, it says here it was shed once for sins. There was an end to the suffering of Jesus, but when Jesus suffered, it says there was this exchange, and it was the righteous for the unrighteous. That means that Jesus is the only righteous one who ever lived. He takes upon himself our sin, our unrighteousness, And he stands in our place, and he satisfies the wrath of God against sin. And not only did he take our sin and all the punishment that goes with it, but for those who have placed their faith in Christ, we are now given his righteousness. And this is called the great exchange. Now, why did did God do that? Why did Jesus do that? Peter says that he might bring us to God. The image is Jesus picking us up and carrying us to God the Father or blazing a path to the Father. Now when it says put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, this does not mean that his resurrection body was some floating spirit being or some ghost being. He has a glorified body. So Peter's argument is like Paul's Over in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul writes, What is sown is is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So spiritual is not the opposite of physical. When Peter says that Jesus is raised in the spirit... He doesn't mean like a ghost. It means he has this incorruptible, glorified body. Now, as we sit here this morning, I think most of our worry and most of our anxiety centers on the suffering of our physical bodies. If you were to ask me, what are the things that stress you out or keep you up at night? It's what might happen to this body or to the bodies of those that I love and care for. And so we question God's goodness and God's purpose in those things, those kinds of sufferings. But I want you to think about this thought. If God accomplished something good for us, 
through the suffering of Jesus, he can accomplish something good in us through our suffering. We are really good at seeing the good purposes of God as it relates to the suffering of Jesus. We recognize this is what brought me to God. We recognize the goodness of the suffering of Christ and what it accomplished for us, what it did for us. But we often fail to see what God can accomplish in us through our suffering. We forget what he can do in us through our suffering. I want you to look now at verse 19 as we continue here in chapter 3 because it says, at the end of verse 18, it says, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now this is the section I was talking about, the confusing section that makes you think, okay, we were, we were on a good topic and then you just changed the subject to Noah and these spirits in prison. What is he talking about? I think it's amazing because Peter's the one that said Paul was hard to understand Then he wrote this. So now, verse 19 through 20 are some of the most debated verses in the whole Bible. And one commentary spent 35 pages on those two verses, I'll spare you. But this does raise a few questions. So who are the spirits in prison? What did Christ preach? And when did he preach it? There are many viewpoints on this, but I'll share just three of them with you today. The first view is that Christ was preaching through Noah back when the ark was being built. That the Spirit of Christ was somehow present with Noah in that time, and that, that, that the Spirit of Christ was preaching through Noah to the unbelieving generation of people back then at the time the ark was being built. That's view number one. So while Noah's building the ark for 120 years, which is amazing when you think about it, that Noah is building this ark for that many years, and also preaching repentance to people that did not believe at that time, that Christ, of course, is with him in spirit as he preached repentance to unbelievers who were on the earth back then, but they are now, when First Peter's being written, they are now spirits in prison, meaning people in hell. That's view number one. View number two is that after Christ died, he proclaimed his triumph to people in hell. Some believe this, and it's reflected in the words of the Apostles' Creed where it says that he descended into hell that he announced their condemnation was final. View number three, after Christ died, he proclaimed his triumph to fallen angels in hell. Now, views two and three, some believe, say this could have happened between his crucifixion and resurrection. Others say it could have happened after his resurrection. There's debate about that on how they view uh, views two and three. Now, I will admit to you, I am drawn to view number three, this idea, because I like the thought of him going to hell to talk some trash and spike the football in front of Satan and all his demons. I like that idea. I really do. But I don't think that's the view that I take. I really take view number one. Are there problems with view number one? Yes, there are. Will I share them with you? No, I will not. Because why would I undercut my own argument, right? 
I think it has the least number of problems with it. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about why I take this view, but I want to focus on, I think, why it's here in the text. And listen, what's encouraging is even those that disagree on these views, they still agree on what Peter is trying to do when he uses this example in the text. They both say that he is, or they all say that he is encouraging us to be bold in our witness when we encounter hostility, just like Noah back in Noah's day. It also tells us that final judgment is coming and that Jesus triumphs over all evil. So we can agree on those, those big ideas. In the same way that people mocked and ridiculed Noah for his message of coming judgment through the flood, people mock and ridicule today when Christians talk about God's coming judgment or anything related to hell. It says, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, so how patient was God? Well, Noah built the ark for 120 years. Just think about that. For 120 years, Noah was building this ark, and he would go rest, and he would prepare sermons. He would, he would build, and then he would preach. He would build some more, and he would preach. And this whole generation, except for his family, just mocked him and, and ridiculed him. And I think that Peter's including this in these verses because he wants the generation receiving this letter to say, hey, live your life like Noah in the midst of a hostile generation. So Noah is spending all this time, he's building and preaching, building and preaching. And I think this shows for 120 years, look how patient God is. Some ask, how can a loving God allow so much evil? But maybe he's giving time for repentance. The Bible says that he's slow to anger, but that doesn't mean we should be slow to repent. We should be quick to repent. If you recall, we said earlier in the series that God offers repentance to humans, but not angels. That's why I think the message proclaimed here is to other human beings. Because it says, he waited patiently, and if it was to fallen angels, they really can't repent, so what's he waiting patiently for? So I take it to mean he's referring to, to, to humans here at the time of Noah. This means that somehow Jesus was present with Noah when he preached to an unbelieving generation. And listen, how encouraging is it to know that God's presence is with you and with me when we are trying to minister and share the gospel to an unbelieving generation. In the same way that the presence of God was with Noah, that same God is with you and me. Like, you're not alone when you're doing that. My friend Allison, she wasn't alone when she's sharing Christ with her friends. Think of all the parallels between Noah's situation and the people to whom Peter's writing here. So Noah's family, they're, they're in the minority, surrounded by a hostile culture, but they maintain their witness through, through years and years of being mocked and ridiculed. And it should be an encouragement to us and in our generation today. Now look down at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, 
we rarely associate baptism with the flood. I don't recall ever doing that in a baptism interview. I may not want to like traumatize the high school student. You know, it's kind of like the flood, you know. They may not want to get baptized then. But the picture here is this connection to the flood with baptism. Now, it's not saying the act of baptism is what saves or brings about salvation. How do we know that? Well, he says it because he says, you know, getting water on the skin, removing dirt from the body isn't what saves somebody. Then what does he say? An appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. So we are saved by faith and belief, and even that is a gift to us from God as we make this appeal to God for forgiveness and for a new heart, a transformed heart. I forget what age I was when I uh, professed my faith publicly and got baptized at my church. But maybe you grew up in a church like this, but my church had a, a baptismal pool up behind the, uh, the, the preacher. And I never played in it one time when I was a kid, right? And, uh, but it was right behind the preacher up by the choir loft. And it was way up there. And, and, uh, and I would sit there and watch people get baptized in my church week in and week out, week in and week out. And at that point, I was a professing Christian. I believed that I was truly a Christian. I was truly saved. But I told my parents that I wanted to get baptized. I said, why do you want to get baptized? I said, because I want to make sure that I'm really saved. Because I saw it as like the, maybe the finish line or the, you know, putting a nice bow on my salvation is how I viewed it. I thought it, it meant that I was truly secure in my salvation. And so my pastor, my parents sat down with me and explained to me what the, what the true meaning of baptism is. And usually in those kinds of conversations, we work really hard to make sure someone knows that they are saved not by the act of baptism, but by faith and belief. And that's an important conversation for us to have. But sometimes we can be so worried that people are going to think they're saved by the act, which is a legitimate concern, that we downplay baptism entirely, making it just seem optional or not really that big of a deal. So I want to be clear today. If you are a professing Christian and you have not been baptized, you should absolutely get baptized. There shouldn't be this this great waiting period between our salvation and our baptism. Now, I understand sometimes if you're just trying to make sure you understand what it means to be a Christian, that is, that is legitimate. We don't want to rush that process. But once you are professing Christ as your Savior, counting on his righteousness to save you, then by all means, we would say, then get baptized. And let's profess that publicly before the church and before Christ. So the act doesn't save us, but what does save us is this inward reality that baptism represents. And he talks about it in this way. He talks about it as, a, as an appeal for a good conscience or a clean conscience. This, this idea of surrendering your heart, surrendering your life to Jesus and counting on his finished work on the cross to save us. Now, when it comes to images and symbols, we tend to downplay the symbol and the image of baptism sometimes, but one that we, we tend to not downplay that much is the symbol of a wedding ring. Now, I know um, if you're married, most of us 
wear a ring. And if you've chosen not to wear a ring, you better have a big tattoo of her name on your bicep. There better be some other way that you're showing that who you belong to. But most of us don't ever downplay the importance of this symbol, do we? If you were to ever walk into a crowded room and then remove the ring, do you think the other person in your marriage would have an issue with you taking off the symbol that shows that you're covenant marriage to this person? I think they'd be upset by that. And if you said, well, it's just a symbol, what's the big deal? But we all acknowledge how important that symbol and how connected it is to reality. And here's the issue, is that God never actually commanded this one. But he does command baptism. And so we really can't downplay the symbol of baptism and say, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. It doesn't mean that much. It's just, it's just, it's good to do it if you want to do it. But it's an important thing for us to think about. Because baptism is this, is this symbol And it's a picture of the resurrection of Jesus and our identification with him. And so if you go back to this picture of of Noah and the ark, Peter says that baptism corresponds to this. Well, how does it do that? Wayne Grudem writes, the water of baptism is like waters of judgment, similar to waters of the flood, and showing clearly what we deserve for our sins. Coming up out of the waters of baptism corresponds to being kept safe through the waters of the flood the waters of God's judgment on sin and emerging to live in newness of life. There are some deep and profound images in our baptism. It is a picture of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And as we go under that water, we're reminded that we deserve not just physical death, but eternal separation from God. And as we come up out of that water, it is now a picture of our new life in Christ. Romans 6, 4 says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. So whenever we look at the flood and Noah's family, the very water that threatened to kill them was also their way of deliverance. As the floodwaters rushed in and rushed around them, the ark began to float up. Noah's family was saved from the water by the water. When you look at the the story of Scripture, the ark is all a foreshadowing of Jesus. It's called a type, which means a type is a biblical person, place, or thing in the Old Testament that points to a biblical person, place, or thing in the New Testament, and the ark foreshadows the coming of Jesus. The ark points to Jesus. Because we are saved from eternal suffering by the suffering of Jesus. So just as the ark was their escape before judgment, Jesus is our escape from judgment. Just as the ark was their refuge from the storm, Jesus is our refuge in the storm. Just as Noah invited people to climb up into the ark, Jesus invites us to climb up into him and find our refuge in him. So I want to invite you to respond to what you've heard this morning. I'm not going to ask you to come down front necessarily, but I want to ask you just to 
think and pray as we worship today. For those that are not yet following Christ, and you would not consider yourself a Christ follower, I want to invite you to to repent. That means to turn away from sin and all of its effects and turn toward Jesus for salvation. To repent and to believe and put your faith and trust in his finished work for you on the cross. And then be baptized. In the Bible, we see this challenge of repent, believe, and be baptized. And and make that public profession statement of your faith. And then begin, begin joining us by living on mission wherever you find yourself. And so I invite you toward that this morning if you're not yet a Christ follower. And if you are someone who is a Christ follower, I want to invite you, if you're not baptized, get baptized. If you are a Christian and you've been baptized, it's a great chance for us to think and reflect back on the significance, not just of the event, but what it symbolizes and what it means. Because we don't just do the act. It's a chance for us to remember that we've been saved from the floodwaters of God's judgment through the resurrection of Jesus. That he suffered victoriously on our behalf. And we can face unjust suffering with confidence, not panic, hope, not despair. Because what seems like just a road of suffering is also our road to glory. God, we thank you for these words of Peter. We thank you for how they shape us and mold us and make us more and more like you. God, we pray that you'd help us to to recognize not just the symbol and the event, but what's behind it and what it means. And God, we can live that out every single day. God, help us to do that in the place you've called us to live in, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.